This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. As baseball fans probably know, the Washington Nationals came to the U.S. by way of Canada. They used to be the Montreal Expos. The team packed up and left Canada in 2005, and they left behind their name, their logo, their uniforms, and maybe, most importantly, their mascot, Yuppie. That's our Canadian friend, Andrew Norton. He has a special connection to Yuppie. It's actually my dad who had the special connection to Yuppie. He died about eight years ago, and his relationship with Yuppie is something that I'm still trying to square. Okay, so a little bit about my dad. He was the boring dad. He always fell asleep at the movies. Pinocchio, Toy Story, dude was out cold. Family trips were planned with efficiency and thrift as the primary objective. And at our house, we subscribed to the one newspaper that didn't have a comic section. He was definitely not into things that could be classified as fun. But he had this one quiet obsession. It was rotund, orange, furry, and six and a half feet tall. Yuppie. Yuppie. Spelled Y-O-U-P-P-I and always with an exclamation mark. It's French for yippee. You know, like yippee. Oh, like yippee. <laughs> Mon dieu. Um... Honestly, haven't looked at Yuppie in a while. That's my sister, Jessica. We're in her basement while her kids are asleep, and we're looking at photos of Yuppie on my phone. That's the Yuppie I know. Orange, fuzzy, wearing cleats, Expo's hat, ill-fitting Expo's shirt, and then, like, googly eyes, but an approachable face? Yuppie looks like an orange-haired, bearded lumberjack crossed with a Sasquatch wearing a baseball jersey. You can picture that, right? It was when we were kids that my sister and I started noticing our dad's affection for Yuppie. He'd light up when we'd see him at Expos games, and he'd look for him on TV. He hated when the game would get cut to commercial because, like, that would be prime Yuppie time. Yuppie brought out this side of my dad that we just didn't recognize. All of a sudden, like, you're just this guy who loves the mascot to the point where you clip a picture of him out of the newspaper and put him on the side of the fridge. An article on the fridge might not sound like a big deal, but before this, the only other article he had ever posted up was about Canada's new sales tax rates. Then suddenly it's Yuppie. It should be noted that when the Expos moved to D.C. to become the Nationals, Yuppie switched sports and found a job with a Montreal hockey team called the Canadiens. My dad died just after that, and all these years later, I can't help but wonder what it was about Yuppie that spoke to his long-repressed, whimsical side. And it's not just Andrew's dad. So many grown adults can't resist hugging and posing for selfies with mascots. Even though it's just someone in a costume, they're entranced. Well, I mean, it, the definition of a mascot, like it, it comes from actually the, the French word uh, masco, a little slang word, which actually means witch. That's AJ Mass, writer for ESPN.com and author of a book all about sports mascots called Yes, It's Hot in Here. He was also the dude inside the Mr. Met costume from 1994 till 1997. In 1997, when Bill Clinton was visiting Shea Stadium, the Secret Service pulled AJ aside while he was in his big Mr. Met costume and told him, if you approach the president, we go for the kill shot. According to AJ, the word mascot came to America in the late 1800s through a French opera. That was called uh, La Mascotte uh, by a guy named Audrian. The opera is about a down-on-his-luck farmer who's visited by this girl named Bettina. As soon as she rolls up, magically his crops start doing well and his life turns around. All thanks to this mysterious woman. 
And and it became very popular in in, in the United States, and uh, the terminology uh, kind of caught on, where people realized and recognized that mascot means a good luck charm. And this idea of a mascot fit right in with the notoriously superstitious world of pro baseball. You know, there were situations where, like, there'd be a kid in the stand who would smile at a baseball player in a slump. He'd get a base hit, and he'd give the kid tickets for the next day. Uh, And, you know, and suddenly he'd go on a big hitting streak, and so he would be like, hey, I want this kid to hang around all the time. And, and that's kind of where mascots became these, these human good luck charms. Like John the Orange Man, who was, well, a man who sold oranges outside the stadium at Harvard, and Yale adopted Handsome Dan, a bulldog they walked out onto the field before games. Anything that was sort of around at the time of a team's hot streak could and would be claimed as a mascot. It was pretty much all animals and bystanders until the Second World War. That's when one baseball game altered the idea of mascots in sports. Yeah, this game took place in Hawaii, and it was an exhibition game made up of service members. Pitching was kind of a lanky, goofy-looking guy by the name of Max Patkin. The legendary Joe DiMaggio steps up to the plate and hits a massive home run off him. The story goes that the ball went into the Pacific Ocean. And Patkin just snaps. He jumps off the mound. This is the pitcher, okay? He jumps off the mound and runs after DiMaggio. People thought he was, like, going to attack him or something, but actually he just ran behind him mimicking his home run trot. And the crowd just went nuts. So he kept doing this act throughout those service league exhibition games as a pitcher. His shtick was sort of a mix of Jim Carrey and Ace Ventura meets the dance moves of your drunk uncle at a wedding, meets like a Parisian mime. And when the war was over, Patkin stopped being a pitcher and was hired by the Cleveland Indians to do his thing at home games to help draw in crowds. It was the first time a mascot did more than just stand around being lucky. He entertained people. And God knows people need that at a baseball game. So now, thanks to Packin, we have this idea of a mascot as a diversion. But there's still a big evolutionary step to get to the mascots we know today. Yeah, the, the turning point certainly has to begin and end with the chicken. The San Diego chicken, who can really only be described as a dude in a chicken suit. In 1974, the San Diego radio station KGBFM hired a college kid by the name of Ted Giannoulis to wear a chicken suit and do promotion for the radio station. And Giannoulis got into it. Like, really into it. The chicken had bravado. He had swagger. He was like an obnoxious frat boy in a bird costume. He'd dance on the field at San Diego Padres games grab people's beer and pretend to chug it. And the Padres were such a bad team that people started going just so they could see the chicken perform. And that's where the San Diego chicken kind of was born. He was this this marketing tool for the radio station that kind of suddenly became bigger than the team itself. He was eventually fired from the radio station because he took on such a life of his own. So Giannoulis got his own chicken costume and kept performing. The station actually sued him and lost. Because it, you can't, you know, you can't copyright the idea of guy in chicken suit. Kids, you can't copyright the idea of a guy in a chicken suit. The chicken was a big deal. Even though he wasn't an official team mascot, he had become an icon. He created the modern mascot movement. Even so, by the late 70s, the mascot scene was still pretty barren by today's standards. Only a handful of baseball teams technically had mascots. Like the Philadelphia Phillies. 
They had a pair of characters called Phil and Phyllis. They were props. They weren't mascots. They were props. Picture if you dressed a couple of those big boy restaurant statues in colonial garb. They were these big plaster characters that would kind of waddle out for the national anthem or if there was a home run. So when the Phillies saw what the chicken was doing in San Diego, they were like, we got to get us some of that. The Phillies found someone to custom design a mascot to entertain their fans. And before she came on board, they warned her that fans in Philly could be a little unforgiving. They said, well, we just want you to know that our crowd in Philadelphia booed the Easter Bunny. That's designer Bonnie Erickson. And the booing the Easter Bunny story is actually an urban legend. But Eagles fans did once pelt Santa with snowballs during a game. Bonnie had no experience with the sports world when she took the gig. She and her husband and business partner Wade Harrison had just started their own design outfit. And they got the Phillies job thanks to a recommendation by Bonnie's former employer, Jim Henson. The Jim Henson. You know, Muppets, Fraggle Rock, Sesame Street. Bonnie Erickson designed Miss Peggy. And the Muppet Show hecklers Statler and Waldorf. I wonder if there's anything she isn't good at. Yes, choosing what show to be on. (laughs) She also worked with Henson on making life-sized versions of the Sesame Street characters for their Sesame Street on Ice performances. So she knew how to make a costume that people could perform and move in, which was a new concept when it came to mascots. So Bonnie got to work on this new mascot. And in the meantime, the Phillies had to find someone to stuff inside of it and face those Santa heckling crowds. They needed the lowest man in the totem pole, the intern, to raise his hand and say yes. That's Dave Raymond, who was that intern. He was brought on board to do things like count the all-star game voting ballots. He had no background as a performer aside from some dabbling with disco. Nevertheless, he would be the performer inside this new mascot. Because of some delays, we didn't see the costume until the very night that I was going to wear it. And, and that, that's when I started getting a little bit distressed because I started to realize that everyone else thought this was a stupid idea. And, and I was truly going to be thrown to the wolves. The Phillies weren't even promoting the fact that they were getting a new mascot in case the whole thing just completely backfired. They could be like, mascot? What mascot? Did you see a mascot? I didn't see a mascot. But I was reassured when I first... Uh, opened the box, and I was blown away with how, uh, how perfect it looked. The Philly Fanatic was born. If this were a superhero movie, this would be when the dramatic music comes on. But the Fanatic is definitely not a comic book superhero. It's all green fur, like very furry, fuzzy fur. He has a snout like a megaphone. He's very, very large and rotund, pear-shaped body with a huge belly and a kind of a duck butt. A very long neck. Stirrup socks, Phillies hat, and a Phillies jersey. Perfect, you know? Doesn't, doesn't that all make sense? No. No, it doesn't make any sense that the Phillies mascot would be a big, googly-eyed monster. But it turns out that every part of the fanatic is like a masterclass in mascot design. For starters, he's green, not the standard Phillies red. Right, exactly. It's always easy to spot the fanatic in any of these games. And the duck butt and the pear-shaped body? No matter how you move in that costume, if you're a human being and you put one leg in front of the other, that costume looks funny. Now when I look at the fanatic, it's so clear that there's Muppet DNA there. Even the placement of the cartoon googly eyes is something that Bonnie learned from her time designing Muppets. You are asking for all my secrets. Well, if you put eyes high on a figure's face, 
they will look older. If you put them down closer to the nose, they'll probably look younger and more childlike. Plus, there's other mascot firsts that she borrowed from the Muppets. Like, she designed the fanatic with licensing and merchandising in mind. Toys, t-shirts, that kind of stuff. And like all good characters, the fanatic even has his own origin story. He's supposedly from the Galapagos Islands. The fanatic is goofy. You know, he'd rub a bald dude's head or rip off the hat of someone cheering for the wrong team. And usually he gets away with it. It's just damn near impossible to get irate with a fuzzy green thing. Though one time he did get pummeled by Tommy Lasorda, the coach of the L.A. Dodgers, after Lasorda had had it with the fanatic taunting him. That's the quickest Tommy's moved all year. We got to mark that down. The quickest Tommy Lasorda moved in 1988 was after the Philly Fanatic. Ah, oh, what a deal. <laughs> and of course, that just made the Phillies fans love him even more. Dave Raymond played the Philly Fanatic from that first game in 1978 until 1993. He only ever missed five home games. Now all but three Major League Baseball teams have mascots, and most of them are big and furry and goofy and have googly eyes. Everyone since the Fanatic is kind of, in a way, copying the Fanatic. And so, of course, Bonnie kept getting work. After we did the Fanatic, the next one that we were asked to do because of the popularity of the character early on uh, was for Montreal, for the Expos. Yep, Bonnie Erickson also created Yuppie. And when I told her about the inordinate amount of affection my dad had for the mascot, she recalled once seeing a big, burly guy coming out of the Expo Stadium with some Yuppie dolls in a shopping bag. He had positioned them so that they would have their heads sticking out, as if they couldn't breathe if they weren't. <laughs> and I thought that was very touching. <laughs> the mascot still lives in this sort of limbo between the two worlds. He's not quite part of the team, but not quite part of the fan base either. I think that's the power of a mascot. What fan of a team wouldn't want to be able to have that freedom to mock the other team and get a response? You know, he, they live vicariously through the mascot. I think a big part of it for my dad was this aspect of living vicariously. Yuppie was his spirit animal, the Brad Pitt to his Edward Norton. Yuppie could belly slide across the Expo's dugout, take the ump to task while the whole stadium cheered him on, steal a kiss from Celine Dion after a show-stopping rendition of O Canada. Yuppie is a fun dude, and I can see that maybe, secretly, my dad was too. Invisible was produced this week by Andrew Norton with Sam Greenspan, Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. 99% Invisible is made possible by our fuzzy and cuddly listeners and by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform that makes building your own website simple and easy. Squarespace just ran this crazy and cool Super Bowl ad that features Jeff Bridges and his new album, The Sleeping Tapes. One of the things I do to relax is to hum. 
There's a video on dreamingwithjeff.com showing how he made the site using Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface offering beautiful templates, integration with Google Apps and Getty Images, and even comes with a free online store on which they are selling the Jeff Bridges Sleeping Tapes album for charity. The whole project is really inspiring. If Jeff Bridges makes you want to make your own Squarespace site, you can start building it today. Go to squarespace.com, enter the code INVISIBLE for a free trial with no credit card required. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code INVISIBLE to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. This episode is also sponsored by Citrix GoToMeeting. Good communication is crucial for any business, especially when the people you work with aren't in the same office. That's why millions of small business professionals rely on Citrix GoToMeeting. It's the proven solution for meeting and collaborating online. With GoToMeeting, you can share the same screen to review documents and presentations in real time. And with built-in HD video conferencing, you just need a webcam to see each other face-to-face. GoToMeeting allows you to present, demonstrate, and just simply meet from anywhere. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. That's GoToMeeting.com. And finally, as always, we're sponsored by Tiny Letter. Email for people with something to say. My boys Maslow and Carver always have something to say. So what would be your mascot, boys? My mascot would be a gray dragon with white bone armor and fire coming out of its mouth. Okay, so if you had a mascot, what would it be? Um, it would be a snowy owl. Tinyletter.com. It's free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter. From the great people behind MailChimp. MailChimp and the Knight Foundation helped us create Radiotopia from PRX. Subscribe to them all. Welcome to the Allusionist. That's Allusionist with an A, not an I. This is criminal. Welcome. Welcome to strangers. To the heart. The truth. Theory of everything. Radio diaries. Love and radio. Fugitive waves. From the Kitchen Sisters. Trust me, it's not an empire. It's a collective for mutual support. If you want to be a part of changing the world of public radio and podcasting for good, Email sponsor at radiotopia.fm. You can find the show and like the show on Facebook. We're all on Twitter and Instagram. Avery runs the Tumblr. I make the Spotify playlists of 99PI songs, but I encourage you to explore the entire world of 99% Invisible at 99pi.org. Radio Tokyo.